This is Purple Radio On Demand. A brief note. Much of what you will hear in the following podcast will be of a graphic and disturbing nature. The discussion between Ed and Ben is frank, honest and very moving, with a topic's broached to difficult issues for many people to reconcile with. There will be a second warning later in the podcast, where the content is particularly graphic. If you are suffering from any mental health problems and would like to talk to someone, you should call Nightline on 0191-334-6444, that's 0191-334-6444, if you're a Durham student, or the Samaritans hotline on 116-123 from a UK phone, where you can have a confidential discussion with an operator. Equally, search NHS Mental Health Services online to find out more about your rights under the Mental Health Act and the mental health services that the NHS provide. Thank you for listening. Story that I've never told I gotta get this off my chest and let it go I need to take back the light inside you stole You're a criminal and you steal like you're a pro All the pain and the truth I wear like a battle wound So ashamed, so confused I was broken and bruised Now I'm a Hello everybody and welcome to this special interview podcast for St Mary's Disability Awareness Week. I'm Ed Chambers and today I'm joined by um, Ben Sharp who's going to talk to us, um, we're going to have a discussion I suppose about uh, mental health in the UK. One in four people in the UK experience a mental health problem at some point in their life and I suppose the aim of today is really to explain that disabilities aren't just physical, they can be mental and working on a way within our discourse of creating an equivalence between our physical and mental health. Ben, how are you Ben? Are you good? I'm very good thank you Ed, thank you for doing this for me. My absolute pleasure. Well, like you, you mentioned that point, actually, in a way, that uh, I am not a member of St. Mary's. I'm an uh, out, outgoing member of uh, St. Aidan's. So I suppose for, for all the listeners, some people will be from St. Mary's, some people will not be. Um, tell us more about what you're we're trying to do this week and the kind of messaging and events you've got going on uh, remotely, albeit. S- so the aim of the week is to basically raise awareness to disabilities, as you said, aren't just physical, they can be mental. So I've been running a um, various things online on the Facebook groups that we have at St Mary's. So I've been uh, putting up uh, what things you shouldn't say to somebody with dyspraxia, things you shouldn't say, say, to, the, say to somebody with uh, OCD, that sort of thing. And throughout the week, I'll be running various events, such as tonight, I'm doing a Zoom chat about a Lou Ferry documentary on autism. On Wednesday night, I'll be playing this, hopefully, playing this podcast. And on Thursday, we'll be having a quiz. And uh, hopefully, throughout that week, we can just raise awareness for people that the word disability under the 2010 Disabilities Act now includes mental as well as physical uh, illnesses mm. that's interesting because i think that's i mean you mentioned it yourself that's something people may not may not know about i mean what kind of what kind of things you've been talking about in terms of uh the the various things you laid out there what kind of messages would you would you send as in on the things you've said on your facebook group i should mention so i've basically just sent messages out there that just it's okay to accept that you 
might have a disability. I think a lot of people don't realise that things, things such as dyspraxia and dyslexia are a disability. Yeah. When it comes to things like that, things that might seem so minor to some people, but are so major, but majorly affect your life. For example, I'm dyspraxic as well as obviously suffering with OCD, depression and anxiety. And that has really affected my life. I mean, I used to struggle to make a sandwich mm. in the sense I couldn't butter the bread because I'm just, I'm just, because of my dyspraxia, I'm just cat-handed. But that's the main message. Like I said, the main message is you can have a mental disability as well as having a physical disability and it's it doesn't change you as a person. You're still an amazing person. That's the main message I want to get across from this week. That's no, brilliant, mate. That really is. Um, and I suppose talking about your story, we've had conversations before, sometimes on podcasts and those off-air, um, about some of your struggles. You would say you've been pretty open about them. Um, I suppose for the listeners, one of the things you wanted to achieve with this podcast is just to sort of explain them and, and give people more, maybe more of an insight of these things that potentially stigmatise, potentially because people don't fully understand the way that um, that people experience them. I think of OCD is one you mentioned. OCD is sort of a byword for someone who's quite sort of, you know, maybe who does something which is pretty minor and we say, oh, that's, that's a bit OCD tendencies, but actually it can take root in something far more severe and far more debilitating and I suppose yeah how would you sort of explain your, your story in that in that sort of context so my story starts out as most stories do when I'm when I'm at school when I was at school yeah. at the age of eight I was I joined a new school at the uh, after I suppose suppose um, I had nursery in year one and year two and then I went to join a prep school prep school uh-huh. and I for the first couple of years everything was bliss but there were tendencies during those first two years that I was uh, susceptible to mental health in the sense that for example I would check my I was always worried that my, my I once lost my PE kit and from that day onwards I was always worried that I would I would lose it again so when I put my PE kit in its locker I'd have to keep checking it two or three times to check it was there and that has taken root and affected my life and that I suppose that's that it's not surprising I've developed the mental health uh, disabilities that I have then things started to go a bit haywire when I went in went into year five I started getting very anxious um, about mixing with older boys worried that I was going to get bullied and I think sometimes they they society puts this message across about bullying and it's so in your face that for somebody who's susceptible to having an obsession like I do it kind of became an obsession and that's and it wasn't very helpful can you explain that a little bit more so I, I you get the as I said society sort of rams down your throat about anti-bullying I completely agree with mm. that but for somebody who is na- naturally anxious this can develop into a more severe case of somebody becoming obsessed with it to the extent that you're worried that you're going to get bullied I see so it becomes almost a it's the fear I mean what you speak about with your PE kit I suppose is is to do it to do with the fear I mean how did that manifest itself more severely I mean people checking their PE kit that probably resonates with quite a lot of people people being sort of anxious about that how did that sort of take root more severely would you say well 
it got to the point where I couldn't stay in the playground during break times and during um, when I entered school before school started. I would have to walk in and then I would run across the playground into the classroom and I'd have to sit there and wait for everyone else because I just couldn't deal with it. And it got to the point where I was on medication from the age of nine. Anti antidepressants, albeit at a low, low dosage due to my age. But that's where it culminated, the anxiety culminated in. And I just want to play this song by Julia Michaels. My friends didn't want to take me to the movies I tell them to fuck off, I'm holding hands with my depression And right when I think of overcoming Anxiety starts kicking in to teach that shit a lesson Oh, I try my best just to be social I'll make all these plans with friends and hope they call and cancel Then I overthink about the things I'm missing Julia Michaels, just uh, listening to that, Ben, I think one of the things I'd pick out from the lyrics is, is that point about you feel like you're always apologizing for how you're feeling. I'm wondering, um, in relation to what you just said about even from a, from a young age, um, I think one of the things that may resonate with people, and maybe you can elaborate on this more, is there's a sort of uncertainty and sort of how, you, how, you, how your sort of feelings would fit in and how people don't understand it. I suppose what I want to ask is, what, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? And more importantly, what do you wish that other people would have known about your situation and what you were going through at that point? I wish at the time that I knew it was okay to be anxious. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to have nerves. Sometimes nerves can be really good for you, like they are before exams, in my opinion. Yeah. As long as they're contained. But I would tell myself that at the time, you're going to get through this. It's not going to be the end of the road, so to speak. It's just a blip along the life's bumpy roller coaster. And I wish I told myself at that time because otherwise, because I saw it in such a big light, such a big sort of black mark against myself uh-huh. that I, um, it affected me quite deeply to the extent that I had to leave that school in the summer of year five to join a new school because I just couldn't cope with the anxiety anymore. Sure. And was that also about, in terms of what I did, the second part of that question that I asked, was that about other people as well? Do you think and do you wish that they, what do you wish exactly like they could have, they could have known about your situation to be more supportive potentially? Because at such a young age as well. But all of us are susceptible to those same things. I wish the teachers had been... Um, I didn't feel like they were understanding enough. I mean, there was one incident where I couldn't find my PE kit and where this all resonated from. And I was made to do my my PE games lesson without a shirt on. And that has haunted me to my day just because the embarrassment. And in that sense, it was a kind of it was a mistake and it was humiliated and you were kind of feared of like sort of mentally and physically exposing yourself in that sense. That was exactly. Challenge, I guess. Yes. Okay. Mm. And does, I mean, from what, from my personal experiences, we're not here to talk about them, I suppose, but one of the things I've, I've found, I suppose, is the challenge 
and how these tendencies may sort of surface is about kind of establishing a sense of control, a sense of contentment as well. Um, how do you think going sort of forward in your story, I guess we could, we could look at this, how you sort of how this anxiety kept sort of repeating on, on itself or continued in your life um, and how do you think you t you've tackled it I guess is a, is a question. So the next step in my story is probably when I joined my new school at Fort House and I had a great time I had a great time there to begin with I had friends I was popular I was doing well at school in terms of academics I was in all the sports teams sure. and everything seems to be perfect. But as you know, life isn't perfect. And I had that bumpy road where I got so anxious about exams, mock exams in year 10. So that would result in my GCSE predictions that it caused me to become depressed. It caused me to not see that life was worth living anymore. It caused me to lose interest in absolutely everything I loved. And I suppose you can see the earlier anxiety te tendencies earlier on when it came to competing in golf tournaments. I would be, I was around the age of 13, 14 before I went into hospital at 15 and I would be anxious about playing golf tournaments to the extent that I refused to play in them and I would run away in the house. Mm. I was so exactly scared. afraid of? Well, I was Failure afraid of humiliating myself on the first tee, which I think all can stem all stems back to that incident where I was humiliated at school. Right. So you felt like that sort of that was a that was a tendency that that kind of being being in a sort of a, that kind of environment, you didn't want to you didn't want to be seen to fail. No, all. exactly. Okay. And how do you, how do you sort of? I mean, that's something that many people, I suppose, will, will have experienced at some point in their in their life. How do you, how did you kind of establish the control in that situation? Because one of the things I know, I found very useful at the time, um, on, on a personal level, and you, you can respond to this how you wish. Um, there's, in, in terms of working on how you measure yourself, measure your own success, can obviously be quite important in particularly in those kind of situations and I had this sort of analogy that you should approach these situations in the same way that you would approach a tennis match so you know if you go into into the tennis match with the aim of winning then you're already sort of focusing on somebody else and somebody else's game and you're defining your success and your sort of you know your, your ability uh, at an absolute level Whereas if you define your success and your kind of your contentment in a relative level, whereas you focus on yourself and you know doing the best that you can do, being your ambition, you don't go in to win, but you go in to give your best. And if your best doesn't work, then you've, you could never have humiliated yourself because you gave yourself, every, you gave it everything you could. I mean, does that does that resonate with you? That that completely resonates with me. I mean, I was completely hexed up about winning, and about sure. being the best and about striving for perfection and wanting to have everything I desired in my life. Yeah. And that just isn't, I just isn't, I just isn't achievable. Even if you're, even if you're somebody like, um, 
somebody like, I don't know, somebody who's achieved everything and is a global icon such as Michael Jordan, there's still mm. going to be instances where he's going to not live up to where what he wanted but I couldn't experience that I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't deal with the lows of life mm -hmm. it was like my life is very my life is still and it was at the time very much a roller coaster I would have lows which would be very low and then I would have highs which would be very high and that's really what I I I fate I I Facebook with throughout my life because of my anxiety and because of the very nature of my personality. Mm. Mm. I suppose, and also um, building on that, um, you've mentioned before actually about one of the kind of things that you wanted to I suppose, um, demystify in a sense was about anxiety itself. And you've spoken obviously the, the kind of um, compulsive tendencies the kind of the way it can hold you in its grip I suppose in a way more about what you said about the positive side of anxiety and how we can sort of as um, individuals but also as friends supporting other people um, sort of you know in, in line with the song that you played um, just sort of highlight those sort of positive sides of things well I think anxiety can focus the mind if it's in the right proportion sure a little bit of nervousness can be good it can sharpen the mind it can strive you to work harder if i'm if you're not nervous my dad uses the analogy of if you're nervous about an, if you're nervous about an exam that's a good thing because it will make you work harder for you and make you revise yeah. if you're completely lackadaisical and don't care about it you won't revise mm -hmm. really you want to find that middle ground if and if you're really anxious you're not going to be able to revise because you're worried about mucking it up mm. And then you won't be able to focus. So really, you want that middle ground of being slightly nervous, but having that sort of focus yeah. that that gives you that focus that it makes you want to achieve, but also allows you not to, if you don't achieve, allows your mind to cope with that. Sure. And in terms of when it comes to people helping with anxiety, I think the best thing is would be to sometimes you just need to ask somebody are you okay mm. it's as simple as that i mean the amount of times i've seen people upset and i've actually asked them are you okay and they said to me yeah but no one's ever really asked me that before yeah i mean i think a university that especially at St Mary's, has quite great welfare structures in place but when it comes to schools i feel and especially when it comes to exams, GCSEs and A-levels, you can become very lost quite easily. Sure. I was going to actually just, just build on that, the, the positive side of anxiety and come back into that as well. It was one of the things that I, I was thinking about when you were speaking there is, you know, the idea of going out of your comfort zone, which is anxiety kind of in, can inform that. We often say even from a young age if you're sort of holding your mum's hand when you cross the road there has to be that moment where you take the leap of faith if you like where you you do something and you go out on your own it's i suppose it's i don't know what you think of this but sort of channeling it to to, to improve yourself but also controlling it in a way that's going to be positive to to, to to create opportunities rather than prevent them 
I think you definitely can, without doubt, channel your nervous energy into something that can be, can be completely positive. I mean, I, for example, I, um, I took part in a fashion show, a charity yeah. fashion show, and I know, I know, I know, not everyone agrees with that because it, like people see it as vain. But for me, it was challenging, ch- channeling my nervous energy into something that could be positive for society in terms of the yeah. amount of money we raised. I managed to raise over £11,000. And I'm I'm not the... I haven't got the greatest body in the world, as you know. <laughs> I used to be very slim, which we'll go, talk about later. But mm. channeling that nervous energy into something that can be positive is without doubt one of the greatest things we have as human beings Mm. it's what separates us from lions and other animals is that ability to channel anxiety in a way that helps us and you can confound up people's expectations like you know and on on an honest level it's i remember when you were this was in february you were doing this yes i remember seeing the sort of what it your personal response the kind of as you spoke about has the kind of confidence but also the the challenge it was something it was completely way out of what perhaps you expected what other people expected and that kind of stems from that same side of your personality i suppose what could prevent you from doing things can also be channeled in a way that that, that could that could bring it something more positive well exactly and that leads me on to my next sort of chapter in my my mental health life and that was when I was 15. I um, I didn't channel the ang- ang- anxious energy in the right way and it resulted in leading to depression. And mm. I would just like to play this song, Demons by Imagine Dragons, just to express to everyone how, I, how my depression felt. When the days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold. how I felt when I fell into my deep depression it it was a demon inside of me it was my dark the the inner they say you have an inner devil don't you and an inner an inner, inner angel don't you a sort of a yin and yang and it was my devil coming out it was my naturally pessimistic my naturally pessimistic attitude to life that became all-encompassing and it became so extreme that I was suicidal I couldn't see the point in life anymore I was lost interest in absolutely everything and it got to the point where I had to be admitted to hospital and I was in hospital to talk about the that sort of um I don't know how to put it, the transition, but the, the kind of pathway towards those suicidal suicidal thoughts. What were the, were there specific triggers for those? Because for, for many of us who've not experienced that, we recognise that it can sort of manifest itself in all of us, but 
I suppose it's working out that, that pathway so that we can identify it within ourselves and also support other people who we think may be more vulnerable to it. I think it's a very individualistic thing, uh-huh. suicidal thoughts, how they're caused. I think that for me, it can be literally a moment of disappointment. If I'm in a low mood and then I have a moment of disappointment, that is all that can cause me to tip me over the edge. Like I said, I live my life on a roller coaster mm-hmm. and it very much is the, ang- the, the the depression's teetering up and then suddenly we have that disappointment and we come back down. Yeah. And that's when the suicidal thoughts occur. Mm. And when I was in hospital, it was probably the worst experience of my life. I can't name the hospital for legal reasons, because sure. of what I'm about to say, but it, it, it was horrible. I was bullied in there. I was the youngest in there by far. I don't know whether I don't think that helped. I struggled to get on with the other. They weren't really kids. I mean, I was fourteen, f- turned just turned fifteen. They were all like seventeen, turning eighteen, sure. and that might not seem like a big age gap, but I think at that age it is. Especially for someone who was so naive and green about the world. A lot of these kids came from homes that weren't as supportive as mine. And I think I was very lucky in the sense my parents would come and visit me, but I think that sort of turned them against me because I sort of, they didn't get many visits that often. And I think partly that some of them became quite jealous. Mm. And it got to the point where they couldn't do anything because the person in question who was particularly bullying me was had a personality disorder and part of her personality disorder is that she has a, a nature to turn against certain people because of their personality so they couldn't exactly do anything if you know what I mean because sure. it was part of her mental health problem sure. and I can I don't I don't have any I can't criticise her in any way because it wasn't her fault it wasn't her true self but it was hell on earth in there. I mean, yeah. I, the screams at night were awful. The amount of times I've seen people being tranquilized because they were getting out of control. It's stuff that I still suffer with to this day in terms of nightmares. And I still haven't got entirely got over it five years later. And that's, and I was in there for eight weeks, and it was, it was, it was, it was awful. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of people will be uh, incredibly moved by what you did, what you just said. Um, how, how do you sort of? Um, I suppose you would say it's, it's, did it intensify some of the problems that you were experiencing prior to um, going into the hospital, and did it, did it create new ones? And how do you really get in a position where you say that you're struggling to deal you struggle it's a kind of continuous struggle something you have to actively kind of and consciously uh, challenge how do you do that and how do other people I mean this is a traumatic experience how do other people ch- tackle their traumatic experiences and how have you done that I suppose is my question well in terms of going into hospital it can do two of what it can do one of two things 
it can obviously help because they can monitor your medication 24-7. They've got counsellors 24-7. Yeah. That you can see a psychiatrist at any point. But it can also, because you're surrounded by other people with mental health problems, it can also amplify your own mental health problems. Sure. And I described it to my mum when I was left there. I wasn't getting better in there. I was locked up in there because it was a locked ward until I naturally got better. They didn't help me get better. It was like a holding pen for me. And in terms of other people dealing with traumatic experiences, I think the best thing that people can do is talk. Mm -hmm. Talk like me. It doesn't have to be on a podcast. It doesn't have to be public, but talk to your friends, talk to your family about it. Because a problem problem shared is a problem halved, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose you've also got... And I truly believe in that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's very true. And you've also got... uh, what, What kind of charities and sort of you know national organizations does does, uh, does the welfare team kind of suggest what are useful as well well one of the organizations that they talked about i believe was um um well one of the organizations i champion is ocd action okay which 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 uh aims to tackle the stigmatism behind ocd and deal with deal with comments such as oh, I'm a bit OCD and stuff stuff like that mm-hmm. because it, you're not really OCD and it's quite insulting to people who have, do have OCD that you're saying things like that in terms of the, what the welfare team champion they champion great charities many uh, cha- charities such as Mind which we all know has done some great work when it comes to mental health sure. um, and other charities that target things like, such as eating disorders and, and addictions mm. Um, but some great charities they absolutely work with and I, uh, the welfare team Mary's do an absolutely amazing job and I couldn't I, I don't think I would be here speaking to you today if I didn't have the encouragement and support of of the welfare team at Mary's today wow and you also I think on, on the back of people's campus cards they'll find the, the number for Nightline I think as well um, Nightline I mean I personally never use the service because I haven't I've, sure. I'm lucky in the sense I can call on my psychologist and speak to him if I have an issue I can organise an appointment for 20, 24 hours later but for people who don't have that luxury Nightline is without a doubt the be- one of the best things you can do because like I said talk, just talking to somebody about it can make sh- can, they can put things in perspective for you mm. they can make the they can make sure that you're okay. They can send people round to your house or your halls of contact, your halls of residence or college in this case. Sure. And I think that's why it's such a great thing. And I, I really salute those people who are nightline trained because that is such a amazing job what they do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, just to just to build on that, I suppose we've we've kind of moved a little bit onwards from that moment of your life and, and towards university and we, we can do if you, if you want to I mean talk I suppose one of the, the big challenges that people face is not only the initial transition to going to university that sort of act of leaving home of going and meeting new people but also the transition something I found as well uh, living on your own for the first time living with new people you know increased independence new responsibilities uh, new expectations, I suppose. Um, 
all juggling, you know, lots of different commitments and things that we're involved in. Um, how did your sort of prior sort of life experience, I suppose, how did the, the challenge of university change those things, create new things, maybe other, affect other things more positively? Well, before I came to university, when I was 17, 18, in the months leading up to coming to university, I thought, this is going to be easy. I've been to hospital and I've been back and I'd just like to play this song, uh, Survivor by W-E, W-E, sorry, 2-W-E-I, which uh, sums up how I felt just before I went to university. second note here to remind those that have found the past 30 minutes or so a bit too graphic to perhaps stop their recording here for those of you more comfortable with the nature of obsessive mental health disorders and understand the importance of disassociating the thoughts deriving from the obsession and those true thoughts of the individual feel free to continue thank you by um two way um which is a cover of destiny's child uh, and ben you played that in line with what we were talking about about that transition to university I suppose that, that song encapsulates lots of things that, that you need. How did your um, experience of uh, the transition to university, I, I think I laid out before, how did it sort of uh, change things? How did it, did it introduce new, new problems or did it um, perhaps mitigate and give you more confidence in other ways? Well, it, initially it was, uh, initially I was really confident I was getting on fine, making friends within the first two weeks I've made my friends that I'm still friends with today. But then things started going downhill. I started becoming quite um, obsessive around uh, the idea that in my head I was going to hurt someone. And it became quite severe to the extent that I had to check under my bed in, and in my wardrobe every night that in my college room that I hadn't hurt, that I hadn't hit a body or something. Right. Okay. And how did you... Um Gosh, how did you um, how did you combat them? What what steps did you take? Well, I couldn't initially. I mean, I couldn't combat them because I had no tools. My my psychiatrist at the time took me off all my medication, which was just an absolutely stupid thing to do. I was not isolated, but I was in a new environment. I and so I had to take a break from university, and I had to. Um, seek rehabilitation mm. Mm. it's interesting you use that that word I mean, in line with the university I've got various things written down that I've been jotting down throughout the throughout the podcast and the key word in line with the university that I always think of is, is, is isolation and, and, and you can find yourself particularly I feel like if you do a, a, an arts degree often your contact hours can be quite limited your structure your day structure is very much driven by you imposing discipline on a pretty sort of liberal kind of open, envi open open, schedule I suppose you would say um, 
do you think that contributed to it and that's something that a lot of people will face at university and, and what sort of advice would you have in terms of tackling those things head on I think it certainly did. It left me with a lot of free time on my hands. And I think the best advice I could give to anyone would be to get involved with as much as possible as you can. Don't overload yourself, of yeah. course, but get involved with as much as, as, as much as possible as you can, because then you're not going to, especially with an arts degree, you're not going to find yourself sitting on your own, being bored. Let's be honest, not everyone, we don't all do the lecture readings. Hey, speak for we yourself. We don't read all of hey, them. speak for yourself. <laughs> Diligent student over but here. We don't, well you can speak for no, yourself joking. but um we don't we don't spend all day doing the lecture readings unfortunately yeah. and you've got to fill your time somehow and if you mm. don't you can become quite isolated and if you're prone to uh, uh, anxiety you can develop an anxiety disorders such as ocd and so i had to seek rehabilitation which which was probably the hardest six months of my life where I had to go and it, they call it exposure therapy. So I had to walk without my hands without in my pockets because I was scared I was going to hurt someone. That's why I did yeah. that. And I had to walk on my own around places, around busy places, around quiet places, just anywhere to ensure that um, in going to men's toilets because that was one of the issues I had at Durham. I didn't like taking, the, didn't like the fact it was mixed showers. Sure, sure. Um, and... In, in terms of when when did it did that when you came back to university and you were kind of confronted with the same environment what what changed in your approach I suppose I would say ask uh, in terms of tackling day to day life I suppose uh, keeping those maybe obsessive tendencies and those bad thoughts at bay not even at bay but just sort of moving moving you know uh, moving past them. I sort of took a fuck it approach right. in the sense that I thought I'm not going to do anything yeah. it's just in my head and I'm a very nice person and if something does happen it's not my fault because I shouldn't I, I shouldn't be let out on the street mm -hmm. that's the initial thought I took because that sort of confronted me and it sort of helped me it's not my fault because that's what, for a lot of people it's who suffer with OCD, it's the guilt of, of worrying about doing something. Mm. So if you accept that it's not your fault, then you reduce the guilt level and then it helps you to overcome it. Mm. Mm. And how did, how much of these, these kind of conversations would you have with, with friends? Were some more supportive than others? And what made those who were supportive or less, maybe not supportive actually, I think people want to support people, but maybe understanding of- More receptive. Yeah, more, great word, more receptive. Who, what, what characteristics of people and allies, if you like, and what, what were good things and what things did you feel were less good from people supportive and how can anyone who sort of would be a friend to you or to anyone else in a similar situation, how should they sort of approach that kind of thing? I think that my friends made sure that I was always okay. They always asked, was I okay? And they always, but they didn't do it to the extent that it made me, they treated me yeah. differently. But they always, whenever there was a situation, they always said, yeah, I'll be with you, mate. I'll look mm -hmm. after you. Whenever we went to a party or something like that, or had a party, 
they were like, yeah, we'll do something with you. We'll look after you. It's just, it's having a caring approach and having, yes, they can't, they can, yes, they can't empathise with you, but they can sympathise with you. Is it, is it more of a case of... And I think... Sorry, Ben. Uh, no, you say what you're about to say. I was going to say, is it, is it, in your experience, would you say, like, from, from listening to, to your friends in that situation, did you find that it was more valuable, less for someone to try and give you advice, but just somebody to listen and just somebody to check in with was way more valuable mm-hmm. than, than trying to almost fix the problem by imposing some kind of new ideas on it. It was just something that had to almost breathe and you sort of adapt to it, I guess. Yeah, I think it was. I think I think if you're a good listener, you will undoubtedly help somebody because, like I said earlier, a problem shared is yeah. a problem halved. And I truly believe that. And I truly believe that for any problem, that is the way forward. It's helped me massively. I mean, I've got friends who I live with at the moment who have been great, absolutely great for me. Mm and friends like you who've helped me deal with my stuff and I think I think there's no point you can provide advice but I feel like as you're not an expert or haven't experienced it yourself it's very hard for you to provide any constructive advice and I think sometimes it can become a bit lecherous in the sense that it's you the person you're giving advice to feels like they're being lectured when they just want to be listened to yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, I'm just going to say that resonates a lot with, with how I how I perceive that. It's 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 often, you know, it's it's not a case of someone saying, oh, you know, you've got to feel better or something like that. It's it, it's a natural process, and people go at their own rates. It's just about being supportive in that sense. I think that's that's really valuable. Um, I, I wanted to ask you more. At the top of the the program, I spoke about the. Well, you actually, you spoke about the change to the um, Disabilities Act in 2010 and um, how we're kind of classifying, we're getting close to classifying physical and mental health in, in similar breath, I suppose, um, in our discourse, maybe not in terms of resources, but that's a debate for another day. Um, talk a little bit about that in terms of your experiences. And I know there's, there's um, sort of internship programs that you wanted to mention in terms of your story that, that people can get involved in. Well, I'm currently on the Leonard Cheshire Change 100 scheme, which I was successful in applying for, which is for disabled and uh, undergrads and people with long-term illnesses. So yeah. anyone f- from anyone from someone who's in a wheelchair to somebody with dyspraxia could apply for it. Right. And that is a great scheme. I mean, they offer it. I mean, unfortunately, this year, some internships have been curtailed because of COVID-19. Yeah. But uh, for example, this morning, I was on a professional development set learning session and it's helped me massively and it's uh, it helps me disclose my disability in the workplace it's helped me understand how to talk appropriately to people in the sure. workplace because it may it may it may because it, it all depends yes it all depends on the workplace but for a lot of people who suffer from mental health illnesses it can be quite hard to disclose and what kind of because there's still a stigma around it and what what kind of support have you received would you say because i mean just from a sort of uh, from a distance, I suppose I would say potentially some of those companies that you're talking about, they can be sort of quite intense environments, maybe um, very competitive, quite demanding. How how do they support you in terms of in terms of in terms of those levels to meet you at that? Uh, 
Well, they give us they give us a mentor okay. each, which is hugely valuable, and that's something they're still going to continue with despite not offering all the internships this year. So everyone's going to receive a mentor, which I think is a great thing because I think it's great for career development and great for someone's self esteem. Also, you're allowed to disclose. You're allowed to have um, various. Uh, they call it uh, accessibility arrangements. Right. So say like you need to go outside for a break every hour or so, 10 minutes to clear your head because if you're struggling with your OCD, for example, like me, I would need. That's something that they ha- they can put in place. So it's all those little things that help and they add up. It's all the little things that add up that really make the difference. And yes, these are corporate environments. They are intense, but... They will support you because they realise that disabled graduates are as talented as people who aren't disabled. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And just in, you know, you know, challenging and creating more diversity within the workspace is beneficial for you, but beneficial for everybody, I suppose, and understanding the things that you've spoken so eloquently about, Ben. Um, I wanted to potentially bring to aim to bring this conversation to a close, I suppose, um, from my end, we're in a sort of as you just mentioned an unprecedented kind of moment I guess where kind of fear anxieties insecurities uh, uncertainties I think about people's futures um, are really things that we're all thinking about Uh, I was just kind of interested from your perspective um, how do we what what would you be given your experience? I suppose what would you what would you say is an important things to bear in mind in thinking about these things for ourselves, but also um, you spoke about a lot of your friends, you know, talking to you, asking you you're okay. That faces new challenges with us being remote. What kind of advice would you say in terms of basically working out if you are struggling, but also those around you? Well, the key piece of advice is is that. F- is that you you can you do not text your friends skype your friends or video message them sure. because just seeing someone's face makes it more personable yeah. and more realistic and it it makes it more like a proper conversation and that can really help i feel like sometimes when you're texting you are you're waiting on a reply and it's quite remote and you can't well it is remote yeah, yeah, yeah. and you can't um really communicate properly with that person sure but um just to finish off really i'd like to say i try to live my life by um the song by american authors the best day of my life and that's really how i want to finish this to say that you should try and live every day as if it's the best day of your life so thank you ed for interviewing me and thank you for everyone who's hopefully will listen Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.